You're listening to Lozano Smith's podcast, where we discuss important changes in the law and legal decisions that affect public agencies. Hello and welcome to another Lozano Smith podcast, uh, one of our first here in 2020. This is Sloan Simmons. I'll be your host today, a partner out of the Lozano Smith Sacramento office, co-practice group leader in litigation. And it is my pleasure to be joined today by two fellow Sacramento office attorneys, partner Marissa Lincoln and senior counsel Carolyn Gemma, two of our firm experts in investigations in particular, Marissa being one of the co-practice group leaders in that subject area. Carolyn, if you're of experience herself with investigations and we're going to be focusing uniquely on uniform complaints and the uniform complaint process and how that interacts with the investigation process so marissa carolyn your first time podcast thanks for being here (laughs) thanks Thanks for having me yeah well it's a monday how was your weekend not long enough oh don't hesitate that long carolyn yours marissa (laughs) it was wonderful kids i'm sure games and practices everywhere soccer and basketball there's never a break there's never a break marissa the ucp as it's friendly known as throughout the state why don't you talk to us about what the uniform complaint procedures and process is Okay, so the Uniform Complaint Procedure, it's a specific set of procedures that each local educational agency must have to address certain complaints that are filed against the LEA. And there is actual law that dictates what those procedures must look like, and that is set forth in the uh, Code of Regulations, Title V, starting with Section 4610. So we say that LEAs must abide by these by these rules or have a UCP policy. And an LEA is an agency that receives direct or indirect funding um, from the federal government to provide school programs generally. So when I talk about it or Carolyn talks about the UCP, we might generally say school districts, but know that these apply to LEAs generally. Got it. And I know I am assuming you two are going to go here at some point in terms of detail and policy, but for most school district clients where they get largely formally introduced to the UCP is in the CSBA's model policies that cover this? Correct. Yeah. And again, I'm, I'm guessing we'll come back there. Yeah. The regulations on this can be found in Title V of California Code of Regulations and then also on GAMET in the California School Board Association's Sample Board Policy and Regulation 1312.3. Now, Marissa, why is the UCP so important and I think between the three of us we all know it's there's not a week that goes by that we don't have clients asking about or looking for assistance or guidance in the UCP process but why is that why is it so important well I think all of us can say that we've seen just in general a significant increase in the number of complaints over the past few years um, especially those related to discrimination based on an employee or a student being in a protected class uh, bullying Uh, sexual harassment, those kinds of complaints. And, you know, a lot of that is likely the results of, you know, something like the Me Too movement, where people are coming forward and taking public agencies to task on these issues, wanting transparency, wanting to know that LEA school districts are taking positive steps to keep students safe, employees safe, um, to keep them in an environment free from discrimination and sexual harassment. So, and it's also, you know, that policy that is so very important that a lot of our school districts are, are implementing the see something say something and it's really having that impact that people are seeing something and saying something and, and with that you know I think comes just this these this increase in complaints you know I have some clients or larger clients that are saying I feel like we are living in this complaint culture and it really is a different culture just you know that has evolved I would say over the last you know three to five years uh, a, a really significant increase so you know number one we're just seeing more complaints and a lot of them are UC content focused so that's one uh, another reason why it's it's important that we want to talk about it today is that we're seeing generally more appeals take place we're going to talk about appeals I think Carolyn's going to 
going to delve into that a little bit later. But, you know, the CDE is treating these appeals a little bit differently in recent years than we've seen in the past. So we need to really be paying attention, uh, you know, as, as LEAs when, they're, when we're drafting these findings letters to make sure that they include the elements that are required and that you are, in fact, doing a thorough investigation because it is being monitored. You're making me think, Marissa, too, while there's these trends and patterns and there's really a focus, and I think what you two are likely going to drive home with us today, all these layers with the UCP and the appeal process there, but there ultimately is going to be an interaction with your, that's probably an incorrect label, but your day-to-day uniform complaints, which you receive under California law, ultimately directly interact with how you might respond to that larger complaint by OCR who says, how have you been handling complaints about race-based bullying or sexual harassment? And so the, 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 this compliance in this area, I assume while driven by state law and wanting to comply with the state laws there, ends up being our major backstop and evidence which a district would turn to to say, if they're being investigated more broadly by OCR as to, nope, we are in compliance. Absolutely. I think they really go in hand, hand in hand. Um, we know that OCR is dealing with implementation of our federal uh, discrimination laws. So since many of these complaints are alleging discrimination, the, the UCP process is really going to be your way of showing OCR if you're taken to task that, hey, we are doing thorough investigations and we're doing them in a manner that is complete, thorough, and timely. So Carolyn, if we're talking about being able to measure the scope of what should or should not fall under the UCP, what are the subjects appropriately raised in the UCP process? So there's actually a really long list of types of complaints that are subject to the UCP, and those are outlined in Title V of the California Code of Regulations and then also found in the CSBA sample policies 1312.3. I would say the majority of the complaints that we see processed through the UCP are allegations that students, as opposed to employees, are subject to harassment, discrimination, bullying, intimidation, and or retaliation. Many of school districts we've seen have confused uh, UCP with other complaint policies that the districts have. But the UCP really focuses on conduct that was done to or students were subject to. And when you're, Carolyn, when you're talking about that Harassment, discrimination, bullying, intimidation, that's based upon a protected characteristic too, right? Correct. Some of the other complaints that are subject to the UCP are those relating to student fees, non-compliance with LCAP or LCFF, PE minutes, and allegations that the rights of foster, homeless, children of military families, or juvenile court school students have been violated. So it seems like I know we've, you know, in our student work over the years of student fees, there's always a fair number statewide of student fee related complaints. I think that trend's gone down, but there still is every year um, hundreds of those types of complaints, not only submitted to districts, but that ultimately make it to their CD on appeal. I'll be very curious over time if this growing category because it's grown over time foster homeless military children you know children of military families and the juvenile court school students isn't if that isn't ultimately a place where we will see an increase over time um, it seems to be one of the areas where it's ripe for complaints because of the various statutory rights that are involved but also one that hasn't yet been fully utilized by those parties who might want to raise those complaints so it'll be trend-wise interesting to see where, where that goes over time. So what are some of the, the, the general areas, uh, Carolyn, that pop up that aren't subject to the UCP, but, you, but you, you, we see districts grappling with complaints on those subjects and maybe sometimes errantly pushing it through the UCP process? As I mentioned before, many LEAs think that any complaint alleging harassment, discrimination, bullying, intimidation, or retaliation based on a protected status should go through the UCP process. This is actually not the case. In a scenario where an employee is complaining about another employee, whether it be based on a protected status or not, 
Those complaints are typically processed through other complaint procedures, not the UCP. So I'm alleging my uh, coworker is harassing me, not UCP, because not student-driven. Marissa, when LAAs receive complaints under the UCP, do they have to be in writing? No. While it's ideal that the complaint be reduced to writing, it's not necessary for it to be in writing. We want it in writing because it's helpful for both the the LEA and the complainant to have a clear understanding of what the allegations are. But it's not a legal requirement. And we get a lot of questions about this issue uh, and confusion about this issue. What do we do if the complaint is formal versus informal, written or oral? And really none of that matters. What matters is the content of the complaint, what that person is complaining about. If what that person is complaining about triggers an obligation for the LEA to investigate, for example, if someone came up to you, whether it be a student or employee, alleging sexual harassment, and they said it to you orally, it's not in writing, you are now on notice of this allegation of sexual harassment. So that triggers obligations to conduct an investigation, regardless of whether or not it's in writing. That said, many LEAs have a complaint form, and it is helpful to have one just so you can direct complainants to the form. Again, we want to urge people to put it in writing. Also keep in mind that whether or not the complaint is made orally or put in writing, that the timelines for UCPs are triggered on the date upon which that complaint was received. And I take it we're going to talk a little more as we go forward about that that gray area of determining what scope of investigations necessary in a given instance. I think obviously it's one thing to have a student or group of students alleging sexual harassment by a teacher. It's another thing to have a third grade student say that another third grade student made a comment on the playground that could be in theory perceived to be sexually harassing. It's gonna mm-hmm. lead to different final processes. Mm-hmm. Right. Carolyn, when it comes to the UCP, what does it require? Uniform complaint procedures have a detailed legislative scheme, but really the crux of the UCP is that you must conduct a prompt, fair, and impartial investigation into the allegations of the complaint. With regard to being prompt, um, that means it must be done within a certain amount of time. And the UCP regulations specifically state that the investigation and findings letters must be complete within 60 calendar days of the date of receipt of the complaint. Stop there. Stop there. What if it's summertime? Summertime can definitely disrupt the investigation process, especially if the witnesses or investigator become unavailable during that time. To the extent the investigation can continue into the summer, the district should do so. If that is not possible, then the deadline can be extended if agreed to by the complaining party. And CDE is extremely flexible about extending that deadline? (laughs) CDE has uh, definitely been cracking down on the timelines. One of the things that is not ideal in the language of the current regulations is it says that the complainant must agree to an extension of time in writing. Well, as any school district will likely tell you, um, trying to get a parent to respond to something, let alone in writing, um, is a difficult task. So unfortunately, that's how the law is written at the current time. In reality, this provision might not be practical to implement. The other thing that the UCP requires is a fair or equitable um, investigation. So this means that the uh, investigator must allow both the complainant and the respondent, the respondent being the person who is accused of the improper conduct, uh, to tell their version of events. So it's not enough to just interview the complainant and make a determination based on that. Uh, You must also allow the respondent to tell their side of the story. When it comes to those interviews, and again, it may be that you guys think this, we should talk about this uh, as we get into some other subject matters here, but what's your sense on the CD's expectations uh, on witness interviews 
Resp I, I get that there could be a scenario where merely responding, complaining alone is adequate, but is it your sense that there's an expectation that the net is cast more broadly than that in terms of the CDE's view? Yeah, I think your point goes to the concept that a UCP investigation must also be thorough. In other words, we want to ensure that all individuals who have information relevant to the allegations in the complaint are interviewed and have an opportunity to share whatever information they know. With regard to the concept of being fair and equitable, the CDE is really looking at whether both the complainant and the respondent have had an opportunity to share their respective version of events. You know, and I would add to that too, we were talking about appeals and how we're seeing CDE treat these appeals a little bit differently than we've seen in the past. And um, you know, so what we mean is in LEA issues, investigation findings in it, the LEA, as it's required, notifies the uh, complainant that he or she may file a complaint with the CDE if they're not satisfied with the findings. And we've had CDE say, we look at your, your findings letters and we agree we need more information. So, hey, LEA, send me a copy of your file mm -hmm. with all of your investigation notes and your witness summaries, and I want to see what it says in there. So they are looking, and we have had situations where after that process, CDE comes and says, you know, this is about discrimination, and yes, you've, you've addressed the factual allegations, but I don't see anything in your notes that says that, or shows me that you have asked questions related to race or religion or, you know, whatever the protected class may be if we're talking about a discrimination claim. And, and they will say, go back and do some more investigation. So um, we definitely have had some instances where CDE has said, we're watching what you're doing and, hey, you need to go back and do some more work and we want to see your work. Right. So, Carolyn, going back to the requirements under the UCP again, a complaint comes in and we know we're going to have to conduct an investigation. What does the UCP require uh, when that complaint comes in in terms of immediate uh, uh, steps to perhaps ad address what's been alleged? Another thing that's required under uniform complaint procedures, particularly in the context of um, allegations where there is sexual misconduct, is to implement interim measures. And this means that the investigating body must look at whether there are steps that can be taken to separate the complainant and the respondent um, during the pendency of the investigation to make sure that they are uh, safe. So one example might be physically separating the complainant and the respondent. So for example, if it is a con uh, student complaining that they have been um, sexually assaulted or a teacher has engaged in sexual misconduct against them, um, you might want to remove that student from that teacher's class during the pendency of the investigation. Um, another one would be to offer academic and personal counseling services. So if the student, as a result of the conduct that is alleged, um, is falling behind in school or is having personally a hard time, the district can offer them academic or personal counseling. One thing that uh, the regulations really harp on is that interim measures must be offered to both the complainant and the respondent. It's not enough to just offer them to the person who is complaining. There must be adequate due process and, and afford that to the respondent as well. I mean, it seems to me, tell me if I'm wrong, it, it feels like that obviously can come up in the scenario of sexual assault right? Uh, but if a teacher's involved, more likely than not, teacher's going to be out on potentially administrative leave if that type of allegation is in play. But it also seems what seems to be to be one of the more complicated areas is in, when you've got the middle school or high school students and there's either alleged sexual harassment, which could go broader than that. I mean, if we've got a hostile environment that's being created based on alleged racial comments or the like, and then trying to make those offers of interim measures and then often until there's a final disciplinary conclusion it's not like we can force or require certain circumstances may let us have greater flexibility but we're often having to advise districts in a place where the victim's parent obviously wants the respondent student removed or put somewhere else but unless or until we're done with our with our with the district being done with its investigation there really isn't a lot of flexibility with requiring as opposed to offering 
one or both students to go to a, a different setting, a different class, to stay away from the other student. Um, that, that to me seems like a spot that's always complicated for our clients. And a lot of times there isn't a right answer as to satisfying everyone. Um, a lot of time it's, it's a give or take and um, you have to make the, the offering and hopefully there is a remedy that can um, satisfy both parties. Do the UCP regulations list examples of interim measures? Or we basically go, I know OCR over time has identified a laundry list of interim measures from that angle, which would seem to apply here, but is, is that where we would pull most of our kind of best practices? The concept of interim measures really originated in the Title IX context. In its Dear Colleague letters, OCR states that schools who receive federal funding must implement such measures. A specific list of possible interim measures is identified in OCR's September 2017 Dear Colleague letter. But really, even though interim measures originated in the Title IX context, they are really a best practice in any investigation. And I would just add on to that by saying just always keep in mind, like with any kind of complaint that comes in, your mandated reporter obligations as well. Sloan mentioned if we've got, you know, an issue concerning an employee, that that employee, we might find that it's necessary as an interim measure to right away get that person out of the classroom have, or, you know, whatever position they're in, um, have that, that person put on paid administrative leave pending the investigation. And this is really UCP or non-UCP, any kind of investigation. And always, always, always remember your obligations under the law as a mandated reporter if you've got a reasonable suspicion of child abuse. Great points. Great points. So, Carolyn, we've done interim measures there in place. We know we've got a 60-day timeline. What comes at the conclusion of that 60-day timeline? So after uh, the allegations have been thoroughly investigated, including uh, speaking with the complainant, speaking with the respondent and any relevant witnesses, as well as gathering any documentary evidence, um, the LEA must issue a decision or findings letter and in Title V of the Code of Regulations, there are specific elements that that letter must include. The first one is findings of fact. So this talks about what conduct actually occurred um, and what evidence is there to support that that conduct actually occurred. The second one is conclusions of law. And as Marissa talked about earlier, um, this is a really tricky component because school administrators are uh, not lawyers. They don't have the training to decipher the evidence of what would be harassment, discrimination, etc. in a court of law. So really what we uh, advise our clients is to consult with legal counsel on this area to determine how to appropriately write that section of the decision and findings letter. The third prong that must be included is the disposition of the complaint. This is basically saying whether the allegations are um, sustained or not sustained or possibly sustained in part. Maybe the allegation includes different pieces of conduct and one occurred and one did not. The fourth one is rationale for such uh, disposition. So the LEA must articulate why they came to that conclusion. If the allegations are sustained and corrective action is warranted, the district must include what corrective action will be taken. This is also a tricky one because since UCP typically involves student, you also have FERPA rights to consider and how much information can you disclose about corrective actions. Um, so again, consult with legal counsel on that one. When Michelle and Stephanie and I did a podcast back in the fall about Title IX and investigations, we talked briefly about OCR's view on this. I know OCR has said in the sexual harassment context, there is flexibility in notifying the victim of corrective measures taken and specifically that that is okay even in light of FERPA. I, I proposed to Michelle and Stephanie, that I would that I think the same rationale would apply in the context of racial harassment. I don't see why uniquely there would be a difference, um, but but they kind of balked at me on that. Do, you, do either of you have a view as to OCR's reasoning on the kind of exception or flexibility of FERPA in the sexual harassment context? That so that would also apply 
to notifying a victim of corrective measures if the complaint relates to race or ethnicity harassment? Yeah, I don't know if I've thought about that one too much, um, but I would just generally say it's it's a bit of a balancing act. And as a labor and employment attorney, um, I do more of that work than I would student work. I always have pause when I see you know some specific information about action take, taken against an employee. I'm going to always want to back off on that in terms of how much we say. Um, but I think that there are some workarounds that we've come up with in a way that we're saying you know the employee is no longer at the site right. um, without you know indicating what happened to the employee. You know the student no longer attends the school without indicating that the student has been expelled. The student context normally let, plays itself out organically. Mm-hmm. If a student's suspended or expelled, everybody at school tends to kind of know what, it, what has occurred there. So rationale for disposition, corrective measures, what else, Carolyn? The decision findings letter must also include notice of a right to appeal, and we're going to go into that in a little bit in more detail, but be sure to include it. Uh, the last thing is that notice of right to appeal has to articulate the procedures for initiating an appeal with the CDE. And again, we're going to go into that in a little bit more depth in a minute. Marissa, I'm going to use a term here that maybe isn't the, the, the best choice for it, but do we have to always conduct a full investigation into a UCP complaint? Now, so let you describe what yeah. that might mean. No. The uniform complaint procedures allow for informal resolution of complaints, including mediation, where it's appropriate. So mediation can be a wonderful option for cases where someone makes a complaint, the LEA meets with a complainant, a resolution is discussed, and the complainant is happy with the resolution then at that point no further investigation is required you don't have to issue formal findings but you do want to make sure that you've got the incident very well documented that we understand what the complaint was and what the lea did in response to the complaint so that if there is a or if and when there is a federal program monitor review of the lea's ucp complaints it can be shown that, yes, this complaint came in, but this is how we handled it. So, yes, mediation is a great option when it's available. Just know that it's not appropriate for allegations of sexual misconduct, including assault. That is definitely going to require an investigation, and that cannot go through the mediation process. Also keep in mind that there are some timelines and limitations on when a complaint can be submitted based on what the complaint is about. So for claims of harassment, discrimination, bullying, and intimidation, the law says that those kinds of claims have to be filed within six months. With respect to pupil fees, the law says that the LEA only has to investigate a complaint regarding pupil fees filed within a year of the incident. Either way, many LEAs find it worthwhile to conduct the investigation anyway because if there is an underlying issue of harassment, discrimination, bullying, intimidation, and the players are still there, the students are still there, or the employees still there, the LEA wants to make sure that they are addressing any issues that could be resulting from having this person there or these people together. So more often than not, I see LEAs decide to conduct the investigation anyway just to be sure that they're addressing any issues that may be there. You're, you're making me think of, so it's, for the CDE, when they're conducting federal program monitoring, like you mentioned, over the years, UCP seems to be the one that gets reviewed the most because of the interaction it has with, with federal laws. And so that log is critical to be able to validate to the CDE that you're in compliance with the policy that you've established and your obligation to review in the same breath, when OCR is going to look at a complaint of alleged bullying harassment, mm-hmm. they inevitably always ask for, do you have a log that shows how you're handling these? Right. Before we move on, well, I'm going to give you a hypothetical. Uh, uh, right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> because this, to me, comes up a lot. Right. So there's, there's an emphasis throughout the state, LEAs everywhere, you've got to investigate claims of sexual harassment alone sexual assault um, or battery student now there's a complaint 
of it that having occurred between two students. Mm -hmm. It's quickly validated through your traditional discipline investigation process at the school site level. Conclusion reached in a matter of days that the event, say in this example, did occur, disciplines imposed. Mm -hmm. I've done that. Students been disciplined to the appropriate degree. I've spoken all my witnesses. Do I need to do anything more from a UCP process at that point in time? Make sure I'm understanding. So do we have an actual complaint here? Assume that the student who is the victim complained to an administrator and will say it was verbal, and as you guys have just discussed, that doesn't matter. But so there has been a complaint raised, and I would say for purposes of this hypothetical, it wouldn't matter whether or not a student raised it or one way or another site administrators become aware of this alleged harassment or a sexual assault or battery. Mm-hmm. It's investigated within two days, confirmed what's occurred, discipline imposed. Do I have to do anything further in terms of best practices under the UCP? I don't think that there's a clear legal answer to that question. But the conservative approach would be to issue formal findings letters in that case to ensure Title IX compliance. Is there room for, you know, we have, I think, I know I work with districts that if it's wrapped up that quickly, we're going to do a case closure letter Mm -hmm. and assume that the student has not formally said, hey, I've got a UCP complaint. Because most often these instances come in on a day-to-day basis, and it's not as a formal UCP, mm-hmm. the administrator becomes aware of, either through the victim or mm-hmm. through secondhand sources, mm-hmm. of the alleged misconduct by another student. And we'll say it's, again, either sexual harassment or battery, which are a mandatory expulsion, suspension and expulsion, or it's possible sexual harassment. They review and investigate in a matter of days, reach a conclusion, impose corrective measures. Mm-hmm. Isn't there room for a letter that basically summarizes the process that was conducted and that and that because the complainant and student victim have no further issue because a student has been disciplined in essence issuing a case closure letter and documenting it as it as having been informally resolved you know we've considered this in a similar context on the employee side where maybe it's not a formal complaint but a report and it does involve, say, sexual harassment of a student, and we say, okay, well, we took immediate action, we put that employee on paid administrative leave, we filed a CPS report, you know, we initiated charges against the employee, and whoa, the employee left, Um, so, you know, we're done, right? And I think there is some room to say that we can issue a letter after that. We did take, you know, the the LEA did take action um, and a closure letter could be issued. I guess the question then just remains, though, is that sufficient for OCR review when they come and they look at your files? Um, And I don't know if we have the answer to that. I would say there's no clear answer on that from OCR at the moment. I would say best practice, it never hurts a school district to document the steps it took to uh, remedy any complaint, whether it be informally or formally. I guess to me the major distinction is the three of us have seen the comprehensive UCP findings and decision letters, some of which both of you have been involved in that are, you know, from around the state that, that can be rather large. Um, but what I'm envisioning here is what is, in essence, a page to a page and a half letter that mm-hmm. says, here's what we did from point A to point B, which is a very short distance because of how quickly corrective measures were taken. And I'd like to think, and I think I, I would say I would recommend to a district when, when you have a large number of complaints, that is adequate. Unless or until OCR comes around or you CDE comes around and says, nope, even for that one that you imposed discipline on within two days and everyone was happy, you have to issue a formal findings and decision letter with all the different elements under the UCP. Until they tell us that, I feel comfortable recommending to districts that the ones that are resolved quickly, and there's no question as to the propriety of the conclusions you've reached, that some type of documented case closure is adequate. Mm-hmm. And the UCP does allow for informal resolution of a complaint. So uh, if it did get resolved that quickly and there's no further issue, again, just some form of documentation and closure letter to the parties saying, we received this complaint, this is what we did to address the complaint, and this was the resolution. will really go far in making an argument should the district be audited by CDE or OCR. And I'm taking it you guys would then say that also goes into the log. It goes in a log, along with, you know, thinking about some kind of centralized 
system or person to manage all of these that is going to have a file that has all your interview notes, all of the notes when you contacted the complainant, you know, who can fill in this timeline um, when this becomes under review, if and when, that can fill in all the blanks and, and demonstrate that we've done a thorough job here. That maybe just crystallized something for me. So if I'm, I'm OCR or CD and I'm reviewing that chart and it shows when it came in, what we did, corrective measures, assuming that we've also done our full due diligence, the victim of sexual harassment's been offered counseling, other supports by the school staff, and that we issued a closing letter. The fact that that occurs within a week, but if we've identified, we've talked to these witnesses, here's who was on the lead, mm -hmm. here's when folks were notified, I think it'd be a, a real stretch for OCR or the CDE in that scenario to say that's not adequate. We would hope so. <laughs> we would hope so, but I guess we never really know. We've been surprised before. Right. <laughs> so speaking of uh, surprises, perhaps, uh, what about the appeal process and uh, that's currently in play with the CDE, Carolyn, and maybe some of the changes we've seen over the last several years? So first off, there is a specified appeals process set forth in Title V of the Code of Regulations. Um, and in that, it's actually a rather lengthy process, or at least the description of it is. After receiving the decision or finding letter, a complainant may uh, appeal the decision to CDE or the California Department of Education within 15 calendar days of receiving that decision. In appealing, the complainant must include a copy of the complaint and a copy of the findings letter to submit to CDE. So upon receiving the appeal, CDE can make one of two decisions. It can review the complaint and the findings letter and remand it back to the LEA saying, you did not adequately address all of the issues, therefore go back and do a further investigation or a more in-depth investigation. Also, if there are new issues brought up on appeal, which we have seen before, CD is likely to remand those back to the LEA for processing as a new complaint. We had this happen once before, and it is in debate at the moment whether that remand back to the LEA for new issues brought on appeal is a requirement of the district to automatically look into those or if the complainant has to refile as a new complaint. And one of the other issues I've seen within the last couple of months, we got this hard timeline. And remind me, do we know, is the proposed regulations, the new regulations for the ECP, do they change that 15-day timeline? For some reason, I feel like they may extend that to 30 in the new, in the proposed new regs. But neither here nor there for now. But what we have heard the CDE do, I, I thinking back over the last 10 years, where there would be various instances, like we would on behalf of districts for OCR, ask for an extension of the time to respond to the complaint, and darn near certain that OCR used, or CDE used to grant those extensions w willingly and quite often, like say during the winter break and vacations for good cause. Uh, but recently, in a scenario where A, the CDE granted the ability of the appealing parent to file late, in the same case, refused to grant an extension of time for the district to respond and said that it doesn't even have the discretion to do so, despite the fact that the existing regs recognize that if the complainant themselves agrees to it, it should be okay to do. So that's another maybe new change in how they're handling this, which I think is problematic for on a number of fronts, but um, another factor that plays into the appeal process and the district's ability to respond to those. So if CDE has told the school district to go back and correct deficiencies, it typically wants them to do so within 20 calendar days. Is this what you were talking about? No, it'd be different from that. CDE does not like it when the districts take longer than 20 days now to do that remand effort, which depending on the scope of the investigation can be problematic. But this is separate from that. Even the ability to provide the initial response to the appeal, you know, which sometimes is necessary, sometimes it's not. There's been an unwillingness as of late by CDE to give extra time to districts to even do that. Yeah, CDE has definitely been cracking down on um, the investigations that districts have been doing and um, ensuring that they follow the processes set forth in the regulations.
So after CDE receives the request for appeal, the CDE will likely ask the district for a copy of the complaint, copy of findings letters, copy of their investigation file, and a copy of the school district's complaint procedures. The inevitable sticking point on this is the investigation file. A lot of times districts don't necessarily want to turn over all of their witness interview notes and um, things of that nature because it includes their impressions or subjective thoughts on some of their notes. So you have to take that into consideration and consult with legal counsel on turning that over. Carolyn, what, or Marissa, either of you guys, what is there a best practice and recommendation for a district staff who are conducting investigations as to what should be going into their interview notes? The hope is whatever an investigator puts in his or her notes are going to stay confidential, but the fact of the matter is that there are a number of circumstances in which investigator notes could be disclosed, whether it be upon uh, appeal to the CDE, the CDE might ask for a copy of the notes, or if the case were to go to litigation. So that, with that in mind, we want to make sure that the notes are factual. Best practice is to make sure your notes only contain a factual record of what the witness stated in the interview. They should not contain contents or information unrelated to the investigation, and they shouldn't contain comments evidencing the investigator's own speculation or conclusions. I think that's good advice. Okay, so after CDE feels that they have received all the information about the underlying investigation, they will determine whether or not the school district followed its complaint procedures, whether or not the findings or decision was supported by evidence collected, and whether or not the uh, school district's conclusions of law were correct. And again, this is an area up for debate because these should be done by school administrators and they are not trained lawyers. So we typically advise our clients to look at their policies and determine whether or not the conduct that was sustained would violate a policy that they have. So typically the CDE must make a determination about the appeal within 60 calendar days of receiving the appeal. If CDE finds that the school district violated a federal or state law, then it may issue a remedial order or it may ask the LEA to go back and conduct a better investigation to support its findings. Marissa, with that appeal timeline in place and the and the requirements and alternatives that come into play there, who's ultimately responsible for enforcing the uniform complaint procedure? The CDE. They're going to be the ones that are going to be uh, processing appeals as they come in. And of course, they're going to be the agency that conducts reviews of files um, if you're under federal monitoring. They'll come in and do that. Also, of course, OCR is in the mix to the extent we're dealing with federal law and we talked about that we have federal anti-discrimination laws that come into play so OCR can also be enforcing reviewing our investigations and we talked about this a, a little bit you know the general feel is if you're complying with your UCP policy with fidelity and you're conducting thorough and uh, timely investigations the hope is the thought is that you are going to be in compliance with federal law and, and you know be okay with OCR I think the underlying point here is just that both CDE and OCR can be fickle in, in how they review and audit districts and LEAs. So do your best to follow all the guidelines and uh, hopefully CDE and OCR will follow them as well. Right. Well, well it seems like it's ebbed and flowed as to what the view has been from OCR as the CSBA's model policies. Mm-hmm. Even with President Obama's administration, they were honing in on and wanted changes made to CSBA's model UCP. Is the current OCR view uh, related to respondent rights? Is that some of the issues that might be coming into play on the present CSBA model? I think OCR focus right now is really on the Title IX complaint procedures and affording due process to respondents in that context. In that context, which leads to, I'll just throw this in and then shut up, is that so you've got CSBA model 5145.7 which is the sexual harassment policy over time that model of CSBA and for most districts has driven 
Title IX harassment complaints into the UCP box. Then there's CSPA's 5145.3, which is its anti-discrimination, intimidation, bullying, harassment policy that grabs kind of everything else as far as a protected class and also has over time driven complaints of that ilk into the UCP policy. And so I think long term, the goal has been for CSBA and I know us and we're working with our districts is to try to make all those moving parts work seamlessly together, which is often complicated, but it, it does the, the full trend around the state and in CSBA's models seems to be get it within your UCP box follow those procedures and you're going to give yourself the best shot at being compliant without making multiple parallel um, overlapping procedures. Right. And be thorough. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's what every agency, every complainant, every respondent would hope that you do is, is be thorough. And you question the additional witnesses and you, you know, you take good notes and you write solid findings. So what happens if you're an LEA and you haven't been adequately following your UCP? So we've been talking about this concept of an audit by CDE or OCR. If at the end of that audit, the CDE or the OCR determines that school district is not in compliance with the UCP, they can do a couple things. First, they can withhold all or part of the LEA's uh, state or federal funding, or they can place a probationary hold on the state or federal funding conditional on compliance with specified corrective action as set forth by CDE or OCR. I can't recall ever seeing the CDE actually in recent memory withholding funding, ratcheting it up to that that ultimate step. You get those corrective measures and you usually follow them. OCR seems to more largely leverage the threat of findings against the district for those terms in a resolution agreement. It's also making me think, though, that while all this is going on, you've got the California Department of Justice who is now more aggressively engaging itself in issues of student on student or student admin harassment and discrimination. So compliance with the UCP is going to be a critical element to pushing back on that, as well as the Department of Fair Employment and Housing also now interjecting itself into student issues as well. And again, I think you're, you're, you're going to come back to showing compliance with the UCP as your argument 1A that you're complying with the law. Yep. And your own policies. Right, right. Yeah, because that's what they will look at too. They're going to say, I'm looking at your policy right here, and it says you were supposed to do this. Did you do that? Right. Carolyn, do you have kind of overarching recommendations as to maintenance of UCP documentation and that investigation process? So best practice for retaining documents relating to these types of complaints would be to keep a copy of the actual complaint if it's reduced to writing and or a memo of verbal complaint that's reported. Acknowledgement letters sent to the parties of receipt of the complaint, a memo or notes regarding what interim measures have been provided to the parties during the pendency of the investigation. Then you also want to retain interview notes and any closing letters provided to the parties, including the decision and findings letters. Also, if the complainant appeals, you'll want to keep a copy of that appeal and um, that process as it goes along. Marissa, more broadly, what are some other things that you think as a matter of best practices, LEA should be keeping in mind when dealing with the UCP, whether on a day-to-day basis or more broadly from a policy perspective? Yeah, a couple things come to mind. First of all, LEAs need to be sure they're aware of and are complying with the notice requirements. That would be something that would come up during a review. Um, so be sure that the, the UCP policy and regs, they're posted and writing on all school campuses and administrative offices, including staff lounges and student government rooms. So you're going to want to be aware of that. The, those requirements set forth in Ed Code Section 234.1. Uh, make sure the UCP policy and the regs are included in the annual notices to students, employees, uh, parents, guardians, uh, district advisor committee members. You got to make sure they're in those 
annual notices and that they're going out as required. And, and make sure that your notice includes everything it's supposed to include. It should have a statement that the LEA is primarily responsible for compliance with federal and state laws. It should include the name and contact information of the individual responsible for processing the UCP complaints, the availability of civil remedies, the right to appeal to the CDE, and it has to be in English or the dominant language of the LEA's community. So that notice piece is important. You also want to make sure that your policies regarding the UCP are updated. Ask if they reflect the district's current practice. Consider where you, whether you want elements such as mediation of the complaints and processing of employee-related complaints to go through the UCP. Because remember, you've got some flexibility there. So if those elements are in your current version of the policy, consider whether they should stay there and if that's working for your LEA. Finally, make sure staff is getting trained on how to process complaints through the UCP. We talked about there being required elements that have to be in a UCP findings letter. So those conducting UCP investigations must be familiar with those elements and other requirements, including timelines. That's really important. LEAs need to be sure they have enough staff available to conduct the investigations in a timely and competent manner, and training can really assist with that. And to elaborate on what Marissa said, since we are in a, a time of this complaint culture, the law on this topic is ever-changing. And so it's really important to review your policies and do training uh, at very minimum annually, if not more frequently, to ensure that you're up to date on the recent law in this area. This has been a great conversation. I'll just throw a bookend on what you guys are describing right now in terms of monitoring legal changes. We know the Title IX new regs are coming out. That's gonna interact with this to one degree or another. The new regulations for the UCP, that comment period, uh, the second round of comments closed up in November of 2019. So I think those new regulations will be forthcoming with some minor and perhaps some substantive and more significant changes to the UCP in the Title V regs. So, to all of our listeners, keep an eye out for a client news brief that will almost most likely be authored by these two. Thanks, you two. First podcast. You two are both experts. I know our listeners are going to enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Um, and, and to our listeners, don't forget to go to our website, www.lozanosmith forward slash podcast. Um, there you'll find a whole range of other podcasts from 2019 and our new ones that are coming out in 2020. And there you can also sign up for the Lozano Smith podcast. Do it so you don't miss an episode. Thanks, Marissa. Thanks, Carolyn. Thanks, Sloan. Thanks, everyone. Happy investigating. If you have any questions about this topic, please contact the host of this episode or an attorney at any of our eight offices throughout California. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. As the information contained in this podcast is necessarily general, its application to a particular set of facts and circumstances may vary. For this reason, this podcast does not constitute legal advice. We recommend that you consult with your counsel prior to acting on the information you heard. Thank you.